back to Human Apologetics. Super pumped to join us today. Today I have Dr. Zachary Dern. We're going to be talking about evolution and design and all kinds of fun stuff. So Zachary, how's it going? Yeah, it's good, thanks. Uh, it's just getting late here in the UK. <laughs> I'm sure. And I'm really excited for this interview. It should be a lot of fun. Um, it's the first time I think I've ever had someone on with the same name as me. So that's always pretty cool. So um, yeah, so we're going to be talking about evolution and how evolution could be evidence for design. So to get things started off, Zach, could you just tell us a little bit about like who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a biologist uh, based in the UK. I just moved here a few weeks ago, but uh, originally from New Zealand where I did my studies. So I studied uh, particularly philosophy and biology in my undergrad. And then I, I focused on uh, molecular biology in, in postgrad and uh, my PhD was in experimental evolution. So trying to look at evolution in real time uh, with microbes. And now I look at uh, bacterial, mostly I look at bacterial DNA uh, in my, my research in uh, at Wellcome Sanger Institute, which is a big uh, genome institute uh, in the UK near Cambridge. Okay, really cool stuff. So what got you interested, Zach, in like questions surrounding like evolution and design and like topics we're discussing today? Yeah, so I was studying, I guess I was interested in apologetics as a kind of late teenager. And uh, I ended up studying biology and philosophy. And uh, this kind of naturally happened that most Christians who study biology, have, at least have some questions around how to think about evolution. Uh, I just read some books um, from a range of people who are Christian or atheist or agnostic or had all kinds of different views and uh, realized I needed to, to, to think carefully about what I thought about these things and then worked out uh, over time uh, what I think is a, a reasonable position for a Christian and for a scientist to hold. Mm, super cool stuff. So what are the big like characters characters of like evolution, especially like at least like in America, is like we have this purely random process uh, which seems to go completely against the idea of having like a sovereign God of the Bible who is um, bringing all things together and is like sovereign over the world. Um, so we really have these two ideas and they're actually just like mutually exclusive because um, evolution is just this random thing. And like, you can't say as a Christian that yeah, we came about as some sort of like random process. So I'm curious, like with that kind of like picture of like what some people think of evolution, like how would you respond to that, Zach? Yeah. So I would say, so long as you think that God is actually sovereign, uh, then I, it's actually hard to see the problem. So there's a verse, I think it's Proverbs 16.33, off the top of my head that might be wrong, but I think it's uh, there's a verse in Proverbs that says, um, basically, to paraphrase it, that basically you can throw the dice, uh, but but God knows where it's going to land. That's a very loose paraphrase of, of what the verse is saying. Uh, and, and so this is like the dice is like the epitome of what we would think of as random. Um, but God still knows what the outcome is going to be. So, so I don't think any natural process which uh, might look random statistically to us is, is unknown to God. So he can use natural processes. So another area where he uses natural processes is uh, in producing the weather. And we can model this with chaos theory, which is another example of what people would say is like the epitome of randomness. Um, so that there's randomness involved in, in, in these models, but, but God can still use these processes. And because he is sovereign, he can, he knows the outcome beforehand, I, I would say. And uh, I don't think there's a problem with him using natural processes that are random in the scientific sense. That's different to the question of whether God knows the outcome or if he's involved in producing the outcome. Yeah. Mm. That's the, the short answer. Yeah. So I've heard like some people um, who have a problem with evolution say, well, 
you can quote like people like Dawkins or like even going back to like Darwin, there's gonna be people that say like, if you wind the clock back, um, you still have this problem of like, well, we still, it could have come out with a completely different outcome looking at like how evolution kind of played out and stuff, which seems again to be kind of like antithetical to like what the Bible says. Um, So how would you respond to kind of that? Would it be like the foreknowledge or something else? Yes, I, I would respond personally in terms of foreknowledge. And I think um, the skeptic could say the same thing about history. You could say, well, look, history looks so messy and random. Or the weather, like like I said before, the weather looks really messy and random. But we still think that God knows what the weather is. I mean, most Christians say, yeah, that God, at least in some instances, and I would say always, knows when the, what the weather is going to be in, you know, 10 days' time. Uh, even in you know, 20 days' time, 30 days' time, even if we have no hope of predicting that, and scientifically it looks completely random, uh, for the God who made the universe and, and uh, sustains the universe, uh, it's it's just really not a problem, I, I would say. Um, mm. So then I would say it's just an open scientific question. To what extent is evolution random in, in, in a scientific sense? To what extent does it use kind of stochastic processes, like chancy uh, processes or processes which have a probabilistic distribution rather than a, a, a guaranteed result? And that's an open mm. scientific question, which is still being massively debated. Uh, in all kinds of technical ways in evolutionary literature. But for a Christian, I don't think it matters either way because uh, God knows the outcome and, and he, can, he can use whatever natural processes he wants, uh, mm. is what I would say. Yeah, no, that's super good. And I like the parallel you drew to history because I think a lot of people that say something similar to like the objection I try to raise here, they'd also believe in like free will, um, which, you know, like if you want to say like, you know, that's going to be a similar thing if you're going to say you have a problem with randomness in like the past of the universe and the sovereignty of God. Um, so one of the most common claims is that, um, we had Paley and the watchmaker analogy and like design arguments were just chilling and having a really good heyday back. Um, and then here comes Charles Darwin in the 19th century and he just totally destroys design arguments for all of eternity. Um, and no one can ever raise a design argument from biology ever again. Um, so how do you kind of respond to that kind of view where they're going to say evolutionary theory is just like the end of design arguments? Yeah, this is this is a great question. It's one of my favorite topics, and yeah. um, I think like there's so many interesting things that you could dig into here. Um, mm-hmm. But but one of them is just the historical context. That um, so, for instance, Darwin was not an atheist, and he was actually sympathetic to some at least some uh, really important arguments for God's existence. Um, so he, he he never described himself as an atheist. Uh, later on in his life, he would basically be an agnostic. I think. Um, so that's part of the context. Another part of the context is that some of his like main influences were theologians or were apologists. So someone called William Hewell uh, was a, a major thinker uh, who was a major influence on, on Darwin, and he, he was a polymath, so he did lots of things. He was a theologian, philosopher, I think a mathematician. Uh, he was actually the first person to, I think, use the word scientist in the English language. So this guy invented the, the term scientist, William Hewell. Mm. He was one of uh, Darwin's main influences. And, and, and but was a theologian and an apologist. And he basically thought that God's, uh, he, he argued from the laws of nature to, to, to God's uh, control of the universe, to God's existence. And so this really influenced uh, Darwin, I think, and a bunch of people think that uh, Darwin really uh, took on this, this growing idea that God is usually using laws of nature rather than intervening all the time. Uh, so, so that, yeah, this idea that God can, can, create through using laws of nature can uh, sustain the universe and control the universe through laws of nature. Um, this was kind of a growing thing around Darwin's time and it wasn't like anti-faith. This is what some of the leading Christian thinkers at the time, like William Hewell, many others were saying. 
so this was being this was part of natural theology. This wasn't going against natural theology. Wasn't going against design arguments. It's actually how the design arguments were already developing before Darwin's mm -hmm. time and around Darwin's time. So that that's part of the background that's really important. Yeah. So so you're saying then, Zach, because it's super interesting to me. Like um, like design arguments. Like even at the time of Darwin, like they were like they were in a sense already like accommodated to like evolutionary theory. Like there wasn't really a contradiction when Darwin kind of came out with Origin of Species. Yeah, so not so much to, so to evolutionary theory, but to some of the background, like the, the whole mm. idea that um, uh, what's the balance between laws of nature and divine intervention, I guess. Yeah. And so there was more mm -hmm. of a push towards laws of nature because that was, that was the way that science was going. So the, I think this was before Darwin. There's a guy called um, uh, Charles Babbage, one of the founders of uh, computing theory. Uh, he also wrote uh, one of these uh, treatises on natural theology, and he also emphasized this idea that God can use laws of nature to achieve his purposes just as well as he can use divine intervention. So this was kind of a, a growing idea. And Darwin's theory actually fit nicely into that. That Okay, well, here's just another law of nature, uh, something like a law of nature, the law of natural selection is, is how he thought about it, uh, that potentially God could be using just as he's using these other laws of nature uh, to mm. set up the, uh, to set up um, the, the planets and, and the stars and such, uh, we can describe these mathematically in terms of laws of nature. Maybe we can do the same thing in biology. This, uh, if it's not a challenge in the case of the planets and, and uh, the stars, uh, appealing to laws of nature to explain how they came about, maybe it's also not a problem uh, when it comes to uh, biology. So that's one thing. Uh, another really important thing is uh, there was a major thinker at the time of Darwin, one of Darwin's best friends, called Asa Gray. He was uh, Darwin's main uh, friend and proponent in the US, professor at Harvard of botany, and he thought that that Darwin's uh, theory doesn't get rid of design arguments uh, because you still need design in order for evolution to work. That's a very short version, but there are a bunch of arguments uh, like this that were being developed in response to Darwin uh, from people who were friendly to Darwin science but thought um, some of the claims that some of Darwin's supporters were making around design arguments uh, weren't very good because you could still make a different kind of design argument in light of Darwin's theory. Hmm. So are you saying then, Zach, like one of the kind of like almost like views of like design, like even at the time of Darwin is um, we have this idea of evolutionary theory, but then like a lot of people at that time, um, I don't know how this translates to your thoughts today, are like, or they're wondering like, okay, well, there's this evolutionary theory or maybe there's something like it's that's going to explain like human origins. But maybe the question of like, where, why is this whole structure here in the first place? And why is it designed in a way, um, or at least appears designed in a way to allow for like this evolutionary process to even run in the first place? Yeah, exactly. So that's the kind of argument that Asa Gray was making. Um, mm -hmm. So he used an example, which I think is really nice of um, uh, um, someone who makes cloth by hand. So they, they sew the cloth or they, um, they weave the cloth technically by, by hand. Um, and so if, if, you, if you see the, the product of this person's work, you say, okay, yeah, that's a product of design and tension. But then the same uh, process could, could be done in, in Darwin's time and, and, and earlier with these massive uh, mechanical looms, they're called so massive kind of machines uh, mm -hmm. that were just kind of in the last uh, few decades were being developed to produce this cloth purely mechanically. There was no kind of you know, human knitting involved, human weaving or human interaction could all just be done with these massive uh, machine factory things. But still, the, the cloth that you see is still a product of design. It's just designed at a deeper level. So you mm. need design to explain why the factories still produce this uh, highly regular, um, highly 
uh, interesting outcome, basically. Uh, so mm. the cloth, uh, whether it's produced through kind of uh, human uh, creations uh, directly or whether it's produced indirectly, um, created by the means of a factory, it's, st it's still designed and it still looks like it's designed. In Asa Gray, at least, I thought that the same thing basically applies to biology. And I, I think similar arguments actually still work really well today. Hmm. That's super interesting. Um, and I was thinking about that. Is there anything else you want to add here with regards to the idea of like the claim that like Darwin debunked design arguments? Um, not really. So I, I think we'll go into it a, a little bit more in, in the next little while, but um, mm -hmm. there's some examples we, we can talk through. Uh, but the basic, uh, question of whether you need design isn't really solved uh, by Darwin giving a, a mechanism because you can always um, at least potentially ask the question, okay, why this mechanism? Um, we, we can think through whether that's a sensible question in this particular case, uh, but it happens in, in other areas. So for instance, in, in physics, uh, you know, we, we might have a mechanism for how the solar system arose. Maybe we can explain that in terms of laws, uh, but we might still need uh, we might still be able to make a design argument from that if it turns out that those laws needed to be fine-tuned in order to produce something like our solar system. So this is, you know, the cosmological fine-tuning argument in physics is doing something like this. Um, so if, if we can do this in physics and, and, and cosmology, astronomy, maybe we can do something similar in biology. Uh, so at least it, it's not, you know, obvious that just because we have a biological mechanism that we've got rid of design. But this is what most people think. They think that just because we've got the mechanism we've immediately got rid of design. Uh, and that's just not the case. And we know it's not the case in physics. So I think it also is, is not the case in biology. Mm, that's really good thinking about, um, well, you have this mechanism, but like, why is this mechanism here in the first place? So I like that a lot. So you talked about this idea of like evolution by design kind of being this middle way. Cause I think a lot of times, especially like in the culture I grew up in, it's like, well, you have like the evolutionists on the one hand and you have like the creationists on the other hand and there's no room for compromise. Like it's one or the other and that's the way it is. Um, so what is this idea of like evolution by design and how could it kind of be the middle way that might be the way forward? Yeah, so so I, I like to think that this 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 could be a middle way that, um, so so there's this new scientific area that, that comes out, Darwin produces the theory of uh, evolution by natural selection. And Christians can respond to this in various different ways. Uh, I guess the main ways are they can either reject it or they can accept it. And if they accept it, then a lot of people think, oh, well, then they have to accept uh, the metaphysical things that, that Darwin is also assuming to do with the theory, or they have to accept all of the interpretation that might come along with it. Or if they reject it, uh, a lot of people think, well, you've got to reject it completely. But there's a bunch of middle, possible middle ways where you, maybe you, uh, you accept some of it, or you just accept some scientific claims, but you reject the metaphysical claims, or you you uh, yeah you just accept uh, some and, and reject others. So I think there's a lot of middle ground that a lot of people are exploring, um, but I would say fairly clearly uh, centrally in the middle is this view that uh, ev the evolutionary processes are true that, that there are that there is a, it is a good scientific explanation, but that it doesn't get rid of the deeper question of design. Um, if, if the evolutionary um, mechanism had to be designed, uh, had to be set up in a specific way in order to produce the kind of outcomes that we see. Uh, so if it turns out that you can make these evolutionary kind of design arguments, then you can have design arguments without having to reject evolution. Whereas pretty much all other design arguments in biology just assume that evolution is the problem and you need to find some alternative mechanism. And you need to show evolution doesn't work. You need to show some alternative way 
of, of, of how we got here. Uh, it could mm -hmm. be that God actually used an evolution process and that it had to be set up in a fairly specific way in order to work. If that's true, then you can make some kind of design argument. Hmm. That's super good. I appreciate that. I think um, a lot of people, I know you're not a theologian by training, but a lot of people uh, will read Genesis like one and two in the book of Genesis and think, well, okay, maybe it's even, maybe it's possible there'd be evolution by design, but the Bible clearly speaks about like God creating Adam and Eve and the animals and things like that, which seems to be like directly opposed to like an evolutionary story. Um, so how would you respond to that kind of way of saying, well, there can't, there can't be the middle way because like the, the Bible doesn't allow it. Yeah. Um, I think this will take a little while to unpack, but um, mm -hmm. for me, at least the first thing to unpack is like, uh, how, how clear really is, is, is the, the first few, are the first few chapters regarding mm -hmm. say the age of the earth and the length of the days. So, mm -hmm. so one of the key things that I eventually discovered and thinking through it, uh, was that, um, so we have six days in Genesis and then we have a seventh day, uh, which doesn't have an end. Um, mm -hmm. so the seventh day doesn't, doesn't finish in the same ways that the, the first six days do. Uh, so there's a couple of places in the new Testament that, that I think, and a, a lot of people think, I actually teach that the seventh day continued um, through throughout uh, biblical times. That that when Jesus uh, was teaching about the Sabbath, I think it's in I, I should have looked these things up, but I think it's in John chapter six. I we was talking about the Sabbath. Um, he says that uh, my Father is working until this day, and his argument is that okay, if, if God can work on the Sabbath, then then I can as well. And the the idea behind that is that this that we're in the seventh day, that we're in God's Sabbath rest now, that God is, is, is God's rest is to, to rule and reign over creation. Uh, and that we're in that seventh day and uh, God is still able to, to, to do work during that time. And Jesus's argument is basically that because he is the son of God, he can also uh, do work during, during the Sabbath. So, so he is the authority to do that. That's, that's roughly the argument that's, being made. There's, there's also in, in uh, the book of Hebrews, it talks about us being able to enter God's rest. And it, it talks about, um, it refers uh, back to uh, this, I would say this ongoing seventh day. So if people are interested in that, uh, they, they can look up this idea that the seventh day continues. I think that's taught very clearly in a couple of places in the New Testament. So if mm. that's true, then the seventh day is not a literal 24 hour day. Mm. Um, I think from that it actually follows that you don't have to think the first few days are also 24 hours because a, a lot of people who uh, hold very strongly to the 24 hours, they refer to um, some verses, uh, for instance, in Deuteronomy re regarding the Sabbath. And they say you have to take this literally because there is a literal seven day uh, working week. But if it turns mm -hmm. out that um, the seventh day is not literal, then that also uh, leaves open the possibility the first six days are also not uh, just straightforward 24 hour days. Um, that's a long-winded way of saying that that's just one argument for why the, the days are not just 24 hours. Another argument is that the sun is created on day four, but the definition of a day is in relation to the sun. So, so what are the first three days if there's no sun? That's one reason to think that these are not, you know, straightforwardly literal days in the, in the way that we understand them because there was no sun. But we me everyone measures uh, the length of a day according to the sun. So there's something different, at least in the first three days, something different in the, the seventh day. I, I think in general, that's an argument for thinking these are not just straightforwardly simple, uh, literal 24 hour days. Mm. Um, once that's open, um, then I think we can think of, we can look at, at the text uh, in a slightly different way. We can realize this is not just straightforward scientific narrative. 
um, this, yeah, this is a different kind of text. Uh, also, the, the whole framework hypothesis is really important, that there's a pattern to the days. The first three days are paralleled by the, the second three days. So day one parallels day four, day two parallels day five, and day three parallels day six. So basically, in the first three days, God is creating regions or realms of, of things. And in the next three days, he's filling those with, with creatures. Um, mm. So there's this kind of structure to the text. Uh, then it's not uh, literal 24-hour days. As soon as we've got that, then this is a creation story. And it's not just a straightforward scientific narrative. Um, yeah, these kinds of um, considerations about the text, I think, open up the possibility uh, for some kind of developmental process, which is not just uh, purely interventions by God. Mm -hmm. The only thing I'd add is like, um, there's a really good book that came out recently by Stan Ben Stanhope, who um, responds to the Creation Museum and like Ken Ham and others called like How the Creation Museum misunderstands um, Genesis and like the ancient Near Eastern context of the Bible. And like he talks about like Stanhope would say like the the he um, this is another possible option here. Like he thinks the days are literal. It's just like what we're understanding with regards to like what Genesis one and two is talking about is just completely different than like what a lot of people assume. And it kind of starts with like God creating like his temple on earth um, and like Genesis one, one and one being dependent on one, two. And there's just like, there's a lot of options here. Like, it's just like, I, I just wanted to add that. Cause it's like, um, it's not true that you just like read Genesis one and two. And the only option is six 24 hour days. And that's young earth creationism. Like that's just not a true situation. Yeah, and I, I think most people who, who read it that way just miss out on the main points of the text. So I think this idea of God's mm -hmm. uh, temple is super important. And I, I think that is one of the a really important teaching that God made the universe as his temple. Um, and then he put his image in, in, in the temple, uh, just, just as, mm -hmm. as was standard. But unlike the kind of standard uh, images in, in the temples of the ancient Near East, uh, he puts human beings as, as his image. Uh, so there's all kinds of important theological things that come out of um, understanding this idea of creation as God is uh, creating a, a temple for himself and he's putting his representative there. Um, and yeah, if, if people focus uh, too much on the length of the days and that kind of thing, they miss out on um, the main things that we should be learning from from the text. Exactly. That's well said. Um, so the next thing I'm going to look at is like possible ways that like evolution can be evidence of design. Um, so we can go with like two or three examples, maybe go through them one at a time. Um, so what do you think, Zach? Yeah, so, so this, this is controversial stuff, and I'm still kind of working it through. So I don't, I don't want to say it too strongly, like this is proof or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. But I think there are, you know, interesting arguments here that, that, that should be explored. Um, so most people probably, I guess, who are watching this are somewhat familiar with, like, the fine-tuning argument. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I think that's a, in, in, in cosmology. So the idea that um, the, the fundamentals of physics are, are so precisely set up that if they were changed just slightly, um, life as we know or anything like it could not possibly exist. Uh, the atoms wouldn't even stick together and subatomic particles wouldn't stick together. So um, it seems like the, the fundamentals of physics are kind of really on a knife's edge regarding the possibility for life. And they had to be set up uh, really precisely. And I think there's potentially something like this argument can extend uh, in, a, in a bunch of directions, including in, in biology. Um, so it, actually, it's worth noting that even this cosmological argument is still to do with biology. Um, mm -hmm. So it, it's, it's, it shouldn't, it's not completely separate from biology. So that the, the point is, uh, the reason it, it works as an argument is because you need this kind of fine tuning in order to get something like life. Mm -hmm. So this is also um, 
so for someone who says uh, you know Darwin completely got of bi- got rid of biological design arguments, I, I think the the fine tuning argument in cosmology is kind of a good first response. That this is still an argument related to biology, um, and Darwin obviously has nothing to do with uh, the fine tuning argument in in cosmology. Nothing Darwin mm-hmm. said is at all relevant in responding to fine tuning. Uh, some people mm-hmm. think so somehow, but I, I think they're just obviously just confused. So that's the first thing. You know that the universe is set up in a, in an interesting way, but we can get more specifically biological, uh, which is the concept of uh, the fitness of the environment. So this is a concept uh, developed by a guy called Lawrence Henderson, is a professor of Harvard, uh, professor at Harvard in chemistry. He, he was an agnostic, but he was really interested in this idea of um, the universe in in terms of uh, its chemical properties seems to be set up in a life friendly way. Uh, so there's there's a bunch of examples of this where he goes through the properties of um, actually not sure uh, what he did specifically, but this has been developed more recently by uh, Michael Denton, uh, who goes through the properties of uh, water and the carbon molecule and uh, the way that um, the fundamentals of biochemistry interact with each other. They also seem to be set up uh, really precisely. If they would if this was different, uh, then life as we know it could not possibly exist. Um, a lot of examples to do with this, to do with uh, the nature of uh, planet Earth uh, being set up um, uh, for life. This is something that's related, um, the, uh, the nature of the solar system, uh, lots of things. But my favorite example is uh, to do with light. That that light, uh, that the light produced by the star, by the sun and, and by other stars, uh, just happens to have a particular wavelength. Uh, and this, this wavelength of light uh, corresponds, corresponds uh, because of basic physics to a particular energy. And this is the amount of energy uh, that we need uh, in order to have photosynthesis. So, so uh, the sun has to produce a particular kind of light in order for it to be used by life for photosynthesis and for vision. And uh, the, the possible range for that uh, wavelength uh, is really narrow. So this is also this is another example of something that seems to be like fine tuning, that if uh, light wasn't set up, uh, if the light produced by stars and by the sun wasn't set up very precisely, then we couldn't have photosynthesis, we couldn't have vision, and life would be at least uh, drastically different and maybe complex life wouldn't even be possible. So yeah, mm-hmm. there's, there's a lot of these kind of uh, other kinds of fine tuning arguments to do with biochemistry, to do with physics, to do with light. Um, that suggests that the, the environment is set up in a really uh, specific way in order to allow evolution to happen. Yeah, so mm. that was quite long, but that was my first kind of whole area yeah. like, that you can give based on evolution. Um, yeah. I Yeah, I was just wondering, I was thinking like, maybe someone could push back on this though and just be like, mm-hmm. well, okay, it's fine tuned for like, life for like us to arise but maybe there's other kinds of life like you know like there's a lot maybe there's a lot of options out here um so maybe we don't need this fine tuning because you know if it's different well maybe some other kind of life could arise you know yes yeah, so, so so that's uh that's possible that's that's um in this case that's a potential answer that's less of an answer in the case of the cosmological fine tuning because in the, when the, the cosmological fine tuning we're talking about like atoms being able to stick together or really basic things like that uh, so you can't have any kind of complex chemistry or anything like it uh, if the universe is not uh, fine-tuned at the cosmological level. At these higher levels, like uh, to do with uh, chemistry and biochemistry and, and getting into biology, it's going to be harder because we, we can't uh, understand the alternatives uh, so well because these things are so complicated. 
uh, we don't know if there could be other kinds of lives, uh, other kinds of life that don't uh, um, rely on, so other kinds of complex life that don't uh, rely on photosynthesis and such. So there's life on Earth that doesn't rely on photosynthesis, but it seems that you can't have a complex ecosystem without photosynthesis uh, as we know it. So for our life, photosynthesis, photosynthesis is really crucial, and so is vision. So vision evolved multiple times on Earth. It seems to be a really crucial part of evolution. And uh, the same arguments apply that unless you have a very specific wavelength, you're not going to be able to get uh, vision because uh, vision, vision requires particular biochemical reaction. So maybe there's other possible kinds of life, but at least it's, it's really surprising for the people who discovered this. Uh, they, they were really impressed by this and, and, and drew some metaphysical conclusions from it, even though they weren't Christians, they weren't theists. Um, so there was a guy um, called George Wild, um, who uh, was a Nobel Prize winner. He was an agnostic, but he was really impressed with this. And uh, because of this and a couple of other things, decided that at the foundation of the universe, it must be mind, uh, because mm -hmm. these things seem to be pointing in this kind of mind-like direction, that the things seem to be set up too precisely, basically, to be just the result of naturalism. So this is mm -hmm. someone who had no theistic... Um, inclination of the background leading scientist nobel prize winner uh but yeah so these things were really surprising enough to be persuasive for people so mm -hmm. it's at least interesting uh, it's not proof but it's it's uh, i would say it's, it's evidence um mm -hmm. that the universe is fine-tuned at a really deep level not just at the cosmological level but also in, in physics and chemistry and biochemistry yeah that's i think that's good mm -hmm. yeah i think because like i just wanted to say like it's hard to like have like like, I don't think there's any discovery that can be made. It's like, oh, you know, like there's a hundred percent proof God exists and like no one could ever like deny it. Like that's mm -hmm. just not how things work. Um, so sorry to cut you off. Yeah. Yeah, no. So, so I just, th yeah, I think a lot of things are kind of hints or uh, helpful pointers in, in uh, the direction of how the universe actually is. So that's uh, one of the main ones is this whole idea of the fitness of the environment. Mm -hmm. um, another one that I'm really interested in is the genetic code. This is something I'm really exploring a lot. Uh, um, written a couple of papers related to, uh, and there's a lot of things that could be said here. But there's a few ways in which the genetic code is really impressive, and it's a, it seems to be a fundamental of life as we know it. Uh, basically, the same code with only, minor, with only minor variations is found across life, and it seems to be highly optimal in a bunch of different uh, a bunch of different ways. Uh, maybe this code evolved, but if it did, I think that process must have been um, fine-tuned, basically. It, it seems like it uh, is extremely optimal across multiple different multiple different ways, uh, which help evolution to happen. Uh, and, and given this um, highly specific um, structure of the code, uh, I think there's a hint, uh, at least, that a life is also kind of fine-tuned in this way. So I, I think I can't go into that in too much more detail because it's really technical, but people can look up um, the stuff that's been written about that. Uh, a, a few people have, have written about the surprising optimality of the code, and, and this is an area which is um, being researched. So the genetic code, just uh, to clarify what I'm talking about for people, is uh, the specific mapping between the uh, nucleotides, uh, the codons, and the amino acids. Uh, I'm not talking about DNA and DNA, I'm talking about specifically about that mapping seems to be really precisely set up. Um, so the oh. different, yeah. So, you know, that's something that people can look into if, if they're interested. And um, I've given some longer lectures on this kind of stuff with slides that people can, can look up online. If, if mm -hmm. details. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the second thing. There's a, a few things to do with the genetic code. 
uh, that are interesting. And the third thing, uh, which is maybe more famous, is convergent evolution. The evolution seems to keep on hitting on the same kinds of things again and again. And this is really surprising. It's not what uh, biologists expected, but it does suggest that there's some kind of deeper laws to evolution. Uh, there's some uh, people like uh, Simon Conway Morris, one of the, the leaders in the field, a paleontologist until very recently uh, at Cambridge University. Uh, he thinks that this kind of points towards something like uh, a purpose to evolution, that it, it keeps on um, producing similar results, even from very different starting points. Um, so for instance, there's a few times in which the evolution of something like consciousness seems to happen, kind of somewhat independently. Vision happens a huge number of times across evolution. Um, various uh, particular forms seem to be uh, produced again and again. So there seems to be, at the very least, I think you have to say that evolution is highly constrained and highly structured. And it's plausible to say there are some kind of deeper laws that we don't really understand. There's some kind of uh, deeper structure there. And um, at least for a theist, it's reasonable to think that that looks purposeful. Could you so, give maybe like a more like like a more concrete, deeper example of convergence? Because this is something I've heard about before, and I find it super interesting. Kind of like hard, like like what are some like con like a concrete example? Yeah. So so most of the so my area is molecular evolution, and most of the examples of convergence uh, are not in molecular, though there are some details which I haven't really studied. But so most of them are more the bigger like body plans. So the mm -hmm. most famous examples are like um, there's a bunch of animals in Australia which are marsupials. So they're a completely different family, completely different branch of mammals than uh, the mammals that most people are familiar with in uh, Europe and uh, America and, and such. But they, they end up looking, a bunch of these uh, marsupial mammals end up looking very similar to uh, the mammals that we're familiar, so familiar with. So for instance, there's a marsupial mouse, which if, if you just saw it uh, in the dark, uh, scurry across your room, you would assume it's, it's a mouse. It, in a bunch of ways, it looks like a mouse, but it's it's very distantly related evolutionarily. So it, it um, evolved kind of separately to, to produce a similar form. Uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of examples like this where a similar kind of organism, superficially similar, a similar form uh, has arisen from uh, separate, very divergent um, origins. Uh, mm -hmm. Another example <clears throat> is uh, like um, some of the features that the octopus has, it's remarkably intelligent, has some kind of consciousness maybe, um, it has, has a bunch of um, kind of skills and abilities that are that are um, not found in, in some things that it's quite closely related to, but are found in like um, apes. Uh, they're also found in some birds, are highly intelligent, has, has some of these skills like tool, uh, tool use, for instance. So some of these, these things kind of crop up in very separate parts of the tree. Um, that suggests that there's more kind of maybe unity or law-likeness or structure to the whole evolutionary process than a lot of people would have assumed um, before these things were were understood. Hmm. So I guess one maybe might say like like a skeptic maybe like listening to this um, skeptical of this idea of convergence could say like well yeah with maybe like Australian mice and other kinds of mice like yeah obviously it's pretty cool how these things are um, similar and like conversion and whatnot, but like there's still that common ancestor. Um, so we could explain things like maybe like eyes or um, like the similar body structures or maybe something, maybe it just goes back to that common ancestor, which maybe is very far removed, but like it's still there if you accept like the evolutionary like history of things. 
yeah, so that would work with some of these things, but it wouldn't work, like for instance, with tool use or 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 um, you know high intelligence or such. Like no one thinks that the early uh, the earliest mammals were using tools or whatever. Mm -hmm. But but you see this cropping up at at, at these um, kind of branches, which are really just like birds and, and octopuses and and apes, very separate, um, but have some really interesting similar properties. So yeah. Uh, I'm not an expert on this, but uh, Simon Conway Morris has written a bunch of stuff about this. Some other people have as well. And uh, a lot of people find it at least intriguing and, and surprising. And mm. this is not, you know, proof of design or anything like that. But it is kind of a hint that um, evolution maybe has, has some evidences of, of purposefulness in it, uh, mm -hmm. which is at least worth exploring and, and really studying these things. Um, so yeah. Simon Conway Morris has, has a couple of really thick books full of examples of these things. And it, you know, maybe one or two, you know, it's, it's not that impressive. Uh, it's the same with the fine tuning of like light, like by itself, maybe that's not very impressive, but I think when you see it in the context of uh, all these arguments to do with the properties of the carbon atom and properties of water, um, they stack up and they, and they point in the same direction. I think it, it, it adds up to a fairly strong case. So there's, there seems to be a lot of purposefulness here, um, mm. which, which is surprising. That's super cool. Like I'm not like, in science at all but like when i think about like convergence and stuff i'm just like wow that's pretty that's just pretty amazing like regardless of what you think of like how it occurred i'm like just like yeah that's pretty freaking amazing um so uh, if you're good with it now maybe talk about like the question of like suffering and like evolutionary um evils and whatnot so i think one of the like major worries in like christians that are like say like not inclined to believe in evolution will also bring this up along with like atheists is when you think about like the evolutionary story of how we get to like September 16th, 2021, where we're talking here involves like hundreds of millions of years of like animal suffering and death and starvation and predation, you know, all these terrible things. Um, and someone might wonder like, how can we make sense of like a good God, like using a process that seems like pretty horrific like this? Um, so not an easy question, Zach. So I'll just let you have fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So th this is the hard one, I guess, but um, some, some similar considerations as, as, what we were thinking about before regarding history uh, also going to be relevant. Like history is also messy. Um, mm -hmm. <coughs> sorry. And yeah, so, so there's a lot of messiness and, and um, apparent purposelessness in, in, in history. Um, and you could say, well, you know, how, how is God in, in charge of this historical process? But uh, then there are other things where you, where you can see things that uh, a Christian would say aren't clear evidences of, of God's involvement in, in in history uh, so maybe there's something like this in evolution maybe this is, there is a lot of messy stuff it's really hard to understand we don't understand it all but there could still be clear hints of, of purposefulness um through that process so that's basically how, how i would see it that um I, i'm not claiming to have kind of a, you know a perfect theodicy uh mm -hmm. that, that solves all, all of these uh, difficult questions um but there are still these, these strong hints and i think taken together uh they are quite powerful Maybe also the evidence of, of suffering and apparent purposelessness, maybe that's also powerful. Maybe they kind of balance each other out. Um, I would be okay with it, actually, because there's a bunch of arguments for theism. So, so if people are willing to trade off, you know, the argument for, from design and the argument from, from evil or suffering, uh, you know, I'd be happy to make that trade uh, as a theist, given the kind of other, the other things we have. Uh, so if, even if you're really, I would say, even if you're pretty pessimistic about it, uh, and you think it's an even trade, uh, that actually still leaves the theist in, in a pretty good position, given the 
other arguments like a moral argument, cosmological argument, and, and such. Um, mm -hmm. so, I, so I'm happy to see it even as evidence against theism, uh, given that there's, there's a bunch of stuff uh, stacking up on the other side. And this is, this is at least how uh, a lot of science works, that science is, is never really perfect and, and uh, precise. There's always some experiments that don't quite fit, um, or, or some things that are not quite fully explained by a theory. Um, often this is kind of like, um, yeah, it, it, it's taught in like a really simplistic way as if, you know, th there's only one possible truth that, that could have been come up with and it's also obvious and clear. But in reality, science is always missing. There's always kind of data that we're still trying to incorporate, particularly in, in biology, which is super messy. Um, mm -hmm. That there's always uh, the, the stuff that, that we don't understand yet that, that's difficult to fit in. This is true with any theory of the world. I think it's also true with worldviews. That that things things are always messy and and, and not perfect. Um, I'll, so, yeah. yeah. No, keep going. I didn't. I thought you were finished. Yeah. No. Going. Yeah. Um, Yes, yeah, so, so that, that's part of it. Another thing is just the whole way that people see evolution, uh, a whole other uh, massive conversation to have is, uh, do, should we emphasize, you know, the death and randomness aspect of evolution? And I think a lot of people just overdo that, that there's, there's also a lot of cooperation in evolution. There's a lot of um, things that, that seem more positive. So you, you, can, um, you can look at it from different perspectives and, and see different things. Mm. Um, yeah, so there, there's a guy, uh, Martin Novak, a leading evolutionary theorist who co-wrote a book with Sarah Coakley, who's a leading theologian, and they've written about this topic of um, cooperation in evolution um, and, and, and how that uh, maybe is, is more friendly from a theological perspective and is a really important thought in, uh, or aspect of modern evolutionary theory is really exploring how cooperation is super important. Um, so this idea that it's all about death and competition and, and, and suffering is missing out on a lot of what evolution actually is. And, and maybe it's, it's emphasizing the, the, wrong, the wrong parts of it. Uh, mm -hmm. So yeah, that's a whole other uh, angle that I would take in, in, in addressing that question. Yeah, no, I really like that. And like, I think it's part of like Swinburne. I was reading his book in the problem with you a little bit ago and he talked about like animal suffering. He said something pretty similar with regards to like, well, like, yeah, there's evils and the animals face them. They also have the chance to do good things like cooperate or like take care of each other or things like that. Um, and the idea of a trade-off is super helpful too. Cause like, um, like I think we'd both be willing to say like, yeah, if certain like things with like maybe like evolution or like suffering, like these are potentially not what you'd expect if God exists. But then you have this question of like, what explains this whole structure that allows for evolution in the first place um and you look at you, like we just talked about like potential things even just in like evolutionary theory itself that may point towards design um nonetheless like everything else and like it seems like we can make these trade-offs which is something i really like because that's probably the right way to think um i think sometimes like i heard a christian the other day say like there is nothing that um atheism, atheism can explain better than christianity and i'm like well, I mean, I don't know, like thinking about like animal suffering and stuff. I'm like, yeah, potentially there's these things here, but like when you look at the trade-offs, like, you know, we follow evidence as it balances out. Yeah. And I, I think um, that is an interest, interesting point that, that could be explored further regarding suffering, that in order to have this suffering, you need to have um, evolution in the first place. So if, mm -hmm. if, it's, if there is some kind, any kind of like design argument, whether it's from, even if it's uh, fine tuning, uh, fitness of the environment, or the more specific stuff that I was kind of hinting at regarding the genetic code, convergence, and, and other things we could explore. If any of these things work, then that's like a prerequisite before you can have the suffering. So, so they need to be kind of traded off in some way. You, you can't think of them as they're not fully independent. Um, mm -hmm. 
so I, I think that helps at least that um, it seems to me at least that the whole framework of the world is, is just much better explained with an atheistic view, uh, even if there are parts of it that are still really uh, confusing and, and, and don't seem to fit so well, um, mm -hmm. kind of stepping back from the whole uh, framework, um, the contingency of the world, the law likeness of the world, the beauty of the world, uh, as well as the moral aspects and, and all the fine tuning stuff um, together is just a really powerful case, I, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm happy to do some of the, the trade-offs. Yeah, I think uh, there's a couple of theists that I've seen do this. Like one is, um, I think it's Josh Rasmussen. There's others who, um, they'll, like, they'll approach these arguments from like evil with, like, you know, like if you put it like a Bayesian form, like with the probability of suffering on atheism is high and on theism it's low. So like it favors atheism over theism. A lot of, I've seen a lot of theists jump the gun and say, well, like, what about atheism predicts that there'd be like a high probability of suffering? Like you're assuming like in this kind of like at least a standard form of the argument from evil that there is this mechanism which allows for conscious life to develop over time, which is able to suffer, which is like completely unexpected, I think, given atheism. If you think about like what does it actually like predict or entail? And it's like we don't really know. Um, whereas in theism, like we potentially have the resources to explain some of it, which would which is why some actually think that suffering actually favors theism over atheism. So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and um, I think there's a lot more work to do in kind of really fitting these things together and, and, and not treating them so independently because they do, mm -hmm. um, they're, they're really integrated. And if you do need a fine-tuned universe in order to have suffering, that that's really interesting. That raises really interesting questions, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thinking taking it holistically is definitely a good move. Um, so do you have anything else you want to say with regards to like the problem of evil or anything like that, Zach, before we move on? I mean, there's probably heaps to say, but I, I think um, uh, so. The, the main thing I'd usually say is that um, often the, the case is kind of like distorted or like the focus is really just on the death and competition. But scientifically, mm -hmm. uh, and just in modern evolutionary theory, there's a lot more than that. Uh, so mm -hmm. that's just important. Like when we're looking at what is the data that we're trying to explain, we should try and not just, we should try and explain actual modern evolutionary theory, not just the, the bits that atheists like to focus on. Um, yeah, that's probably probably the main thing that I would say. Um, that's good. Yeah, but there's 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 obviously lots of theodicy kind of related things that that should also be explored. Yeah, I remember talking with Joshua Swamadas about like a similar question and like the lots of death. And he's, he he just kind of came back on. It. I was like, yeah, well, there's also lots of life. And I was like, yeah, I guess I didn't really think about it that way before. Um, so yeah, that's good. So. Zach, do you have any kind of like recommended like resources, like books, articles, um, videos? I know you've done some lecture things and stuff as well with topics like this. Um, for people who are interested in exploring this idea further. Yeah, so if they want to look into this specific area, um, I've done a, a, a couple of talks with my friend Aroka Kuyonen uh, at Capturing Christianity. So if you just uh, Google for Capturing Christianity Evolution, you should see some of the YouTube links. To, to these talks, I've written a, a couple of little essays on, on this topic, also at Capturing Christianity. Um, so that's for like in-depth interviews on, on this stuff. Just for natural theology in general, uh, you mentioned Richard Swinburne. I'm a huge fan of Richard Swinburne. Mm -hmm. uh, I think his approach is super helpful. He has some really little books as well. I can't remember the titles. I think one of them might be Is There a God or Does God Exist or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and Was Jesus God? Um, these are just super like they're pretty small but they're super helpful introduction to this whole concept of, of, of seeing um i guess worldviews as theories that, that can be compared against the data um so he um originally was uh, a philosopher of science and he kind of moved that 
put some of these methods into the philosophy of religion and at least as a, for scientists i think it's super helpful uh to, to as a framework uh to to see some of these things um i guess a more popular version as uh, so, so yeah his, his little ones i think are pretty readable but an, an even more popular version which is still really rigorous of this kind of stuff that i really like uh, is a book called um atheism's new clothes by david glass uh, he's a philosopher physicist and a computer scientist really well qualified uh, he, he summarizes a bunch of these kind of bayesian arguments in, in, into one book uh, both refuting the new atheists but also kind of putting a really positive case for christian theism based on the kind of richard swinburne type arguments um updated but like it, it's uh it's i would say it's really good and rigorous but also really readable so yeah david glass richard twin moon both really good for anything on natural theology if you want to go deep into natural theology i think alistair mcgrath is, is the person to to go to and he has a, a ton of books i've only read a few of them uh, on on these kinds of things and he thought really carefully about these uh these topics uh if for the specifically science stuff i really like michael denton um, this is the stuff around light the carbon atom and the fine tuning of the environment the fitness of the environment he's not even a christian himself actually but his arguments i think clearly point in some kind of theistic direction and um yeah it, it i think it just adds more weight to them that they're not coming from a specifically christian and apologetic view but uh, a lot of people from various different worldviews, when they dig into these things have at least found them really intriguing and thought they definitely seem to uh be in uh intention in strong tension with naturalism and I, I think that's a good place to start well zach thank you so much for your time today it's been so much fun i really enjoyed this talk um and there's also a link to your website like down below which you didn't mention and all that stuff um so you can check out zach's work and all the things lots of great content over there um so yeah thank you so much zach for joining me today it's been so much fun i really appreciate your time yeah it was great to chat thank you and i hope yeah. you look into these things a bit more Yes, for sure. I completely agree. And thank you to everyone who's listening and joined us today. Um, and yeah, I really appreciate it. And if you're new here, I always encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, all that fun stuff. If you enjoy the channel, um, become a patron at patreon.com slash adherentapologetics. Your support helps a lot. But yeah, that's it. So one last time, Zach, thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Really appreciate you and all your hard work. Yeah, thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in. Uh, God bless. <laughs>